0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Job numbers in America show positive signs, but is there a danger some people will be left behind? Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, a former director of America's National Economic Council asks whether economic dignity could cut through partisan politics and pave the way to a fairer recovery.
2: Shouldn't we be able to construct an economy where these basic human values that are universal could be afforded to all who are doing their share.
1: And the huge German business you've never heard of that thrives on
3: its secrecy. There's no photograph of any member of the Ryman family available. I mean, I looked everywhere, and on their website, of course, there's nothing.
1: First, The pandemic has brought business to a halt and led to fears that the American economy might not easily bounce back. The National Bureau of Economic Research has already declared the economy in recession. But positive signs are emerging. The index for the tech-dominated Nasdaq exchange has reached a record level, and the S&P 500 index crawled its way above the opening year level, despite having collapsed in March. And the country's latest employment figures showed that more Americans were in work in May than in April. Donald Trump hailed this as showing America was already embarked on a recovery. Better, he said, than a V-shaped one, more of a rocket ship. Well, is there anything in that?
4: Most economists of the US economy had expected unemployment to come in at around 20%. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer for The Economist obviously very high, the highest figures really since the Great Depression. Uh, And then when you see the figure of around 13% come in, uh, it's no surprise that people were rushing to explain what happened.
1: And why were expectations so low to start with?
4: Well, if you looked at some of the so-called real-time economic data, so data that's often produced by private sector organisations, There wasn't really much of a sign of an upturn in, for instance, job postings being placed online. The data on GDP was pretty bad. And often there's a pretty strong relationship between what happens to GDP and what happens to the labour market. And I think also there was a sense that the stimulus plan that America has brought in, which is really significant in economic terms, people really kind of thought that that wouldn't have much of an impact until perhaps June or July. So so that was also feeding into quite low expectations for this report. So
1: what were analysts missing? Why were the real-time data, for example, so out of kilter with the historic data?
4: So, I mean, it's hard to say for certain, but take, for instance, the uh, real-time data on job postings online, which can be tracked pretty much, you know, day to day. If it's the case that a lot of companies are actually rehiring workers that they temporarily laid off, they won't be placing an ad online or in a newspaper or whatever. They will just call up that person and say, actually, we're reopening. Can you come back on Monday? So if as an economist you're looking at online job postings as a proxy for the labour market, then it's you know you're liable to be misled by those figures. I think also there's a lot of judgment calls that take place at the moment because there's very few historical parallels to go off. And, I, I, you know, I think people have been surprised at how quickly lots of businesses have reopened as lockdowns in different parts of the US have eased.
1: We're talking on a national level, I suppose. But is there any information yet on how this varies for different regions and demographic groups?
4: Absolutely. So, you know, as with any labour market report, there'll be some groups that do well in some groups that do not so well. In particular, if you look at how this breaks down by different ethnic groups, people who are white saw a pretty strong increase in um, employment between April and May, but ethnic minorities saw a much, much smaller increase in employment. And so to, uh, to look into that into a bit more detail, I spoke with Benga Ajilore, who's a senior economist at the Center for American Progress, which is a think tank. And he's also uh, the former president of the National Economic Association.
5: So last month, the unemployment rate was about 14.2% for whites and 16.7% for blacks. And then it dropped to 12.4% for whites, and then it went, ticked up about 16.8%. So one of the things that I'd look at is the ratio of the black to white unemployment rate, kind of a measure of the gap. And one reason why I looked at that is that over the last 50 years, it's always been double. The black rate's always been twice that of the white rate. And then last month, it actually kind of converged down to about 1.2. This month now starts to expand again, and we're going back to having, increasing this gap. And so that's one of the things that I always try to monitor is that there's always this gap between the black and white unemployment rate that's been persistent through good economies and poor economies. Do you have any sense of what might
4: be explaining that
5: differential performance? Well, it's something that we've always seen and something that's part of the labor market that, you know, we can look at in terms of structural racism. And so there's a number of factors that have led to that gap being maintained. And so seeing that kind of result in the numbers is pretty much straightforward because we haven't taken the steps needed to. So if you look at, you think about two different aspects. One, Mass incarceration has always you know, had people drop out of the labor force and made it difficult for them to be attached to the labor market. And so the justice system has always been disproportionately African-American. So that's one factor. We also look at occupational segregation. And this is something that actually has uh, intersectional aspects in terms of race and gender, where black women, Latinx women, Asian women are steered into lower paying, lower earnings jobs. Uh, don't actually have as much attachment to the labor force because of our lack of suitable childcare, things like that. And so these numbers actually make sense if you've been following the labor market over years.
4: So over the next few months, as we see, you know, month monthly job report after monthly jobs report, and we see this pattern persisting where there's you know stronger employment growth and bigger falls in unemployment among whites as compared with ethnic minorities. Is there something that can be done kind of today or? In the next kind of few weeks that could help to address that problem because people are hurting right now aren't
5: they exactly and right now the house had passed or about two weeks ago house had passed what was called the heroes act and one of the big parts of that was about 500 billion dollars to state and local governments and that's one of the biggest things that could really help out the fiscal year for governments are going to end in june 30th and so we see a lot of these job loss because of that this money going to the state and local governments can really help with their budget shortfalls because there's two things happening. There's increased spending from tackling the COVID crisis, but there's also decreased revenue from the loss of income tax revenues and the loss of sales tax revenues. And providing money for state and local governments would provide that relief to help with their budget shortfalls. And that would be very helpful in terms of stabilizing the economy.
1: As I was saying in the introduction, Callum, President Trump has been seizing on these numbers a sign that a vigorous recovery is already underway. Is there anything in that?
4: Well, it depends on who you ask. You know, there is an argument that is now going around some people, which says that if you look at the stock market, which is uh, the US stock market is doing extremely well, and the S&P 500 is pretty much back where it was at the beginning of the year. The reason why that's happening is because a lot of market participants believe that there will be a very strong bounce back on economic activity. I think it's important to put the latest jobs report in some sort of context, though. Obviously, it's fantastic news that two and a half million jobs were created in a single month. That's a huge figure and something that is, you know, should be be celebrated. But, you know, we're still talking about 20 million jobs that have been lost as a result of the pandemic. So we need another nine of these jobs reports or another eight of these massive jobs reports to get back to where we started. So there's still an awful long way to go.
1: I think the markets this week have been slightly uh, transfixed, looking ahead to the announcement on Wednesday by the Fed of what it's going to do next. How do you see all these unemployment numbers affecting its decision-making?
4: It's unlikely that they're going to change direction much in either way, I I would have thought. Um, They will be very aware of the fact that there is a long, long way to go in terms of economic recovery. So it would be very surprising if they were to start talking about tightening monetary policy. You know, they responded very quickly when the pandemic hit and they loosened monetary policy, cutting interest rates and offering liquidity to corporates and so forth. I don't think that will change, but I think what you will get from some investors is looking at potentially where members of the FOMC see interest rates in a year's time or two years time for clues as to how they're thinking about the shape of the economic recovery.
1: But are economists concerned that the, financial markets with the Nasdaq at records, the uh, S&P back to where it was at the beginning of the year. Are they concerned that that's so now out of joint with the underlying economic situation with America being in a recession?
4: Well, it certainly seems that way. There is, however, another way of looking at this, which is that markets are often not just concerned with current economic conditions, i.e. how the economy is doing today. They are equally if not more concerned sometimes with how the economy is forecast to be doing in a year's time or possibly in two years time. And there's a pretty strong correlation between, for instance, the S&P 500 and expectations for economic growth in the US, you know, in one year from now or two years from now. Now, of course, what's so weird about this recession, and is quite unique, actually, is that obviously GDP will fall very sharply in 2020. But almost all economists expect a pretty big bounce back in 2021 and 2022. So they expect economic growth to be pretty strong in both of those years. And once you have that idea in your mind, and you have also the idea that, you know, investors tend to look ahead, then actually it's a little bit easier to explain why the markets might be looking pretty uh, bubbly at the moment. And you might even argue that there's further room for increases in stock markets over the next few weeks.
1: Callum Williams, thanks very much. Thank you. And our thanks also to Benga Ajilori. These latest employment figures suggest early signs of economic recovery are doing little to tackle existing inequality. In some areas, gaps may even be widening. Now, many economists are asking what can be done to ensure a more level playing field ahead. In a new book, Gene Sperling lays out his vision for the road to a more equitable society, through what he calls economic dignity. Our economics editor Henry Kerr interviewed Mr Sperling, who's a former director of the National Economic Council for Presidents Clinton and Obama.
2: I define economic dignity as resting on three pillars. The capacity to not only care for your family, but to be there for one's loved ones in what for all of us are our most precious moments the ability to pursue potential purpose and meaning in your life and have true first and second chances to do so and finally do we have the power to work with respect free from abuse humiliation and domination it becomes easy even for the most well-intentioned person to start confusing the metrics we use, whether it's unemployment or GDP, or the recent policy fight of the day, as if that was the end goal itself instead of a means to our ultimate end goal. And so I wanted to step back Beyond the numbers, what is it that we're trying to achieve ultimately for the people we are here to, to serve as a nation, our ultimate North Star for, for economic policy?
6: It's one thing to find a value desirable or want to put it into practice, and it's another thing to say that it's actually achievable. Could you talk a bit about whether it's in fact possible for everyone to have the level of economic dignity that you'd like them to have?
2: Look, if one's view is achieving all your wildest dreams, uh, you know, I'm never going to play Federer at Wimbledon. Nobody can be assured that everything they want in terms of the house, the career happens. But the question you ask is, is there a degree in a capitalist country where life is certainly based on luck and talent and all sorts of a mix of things, is there some baseline that you can say everyone should have? And I even quote Adam Smith and Teddy Roosevelt as suggesting that even in their vision of a market economy, it rests on the notion that those working have a minimum. And perhaps what I'm saying here is that minimum shouldn't just be that you're not an inch below poverty, but whether these basic human values of being able to care for family pursue potential, work with a sense of camaraderie and respect is achievable for everyone, even if we accept that there will be a degree of inequality in a capitalist economy
6: during your time in the White House, you helped design some of the economic policies which are most associated with what you might call the dominant economic policy paradigm of recent decades. Things like the earned income tax credit. Uh, You helped to write balanced budget laws. You were involved when China joined the World Trade Organization. That whole liberal paradigm is now under attack from populists on the left and the right. To what extent is the agenda of economic dignity in keeping with what you have pursued during your policymaking career? Or to what extent is it saying, here's a gap in the system where we've got it wrong?
2: I think part of the problem is that we look at everything in terms of you know, what part of the Democratic Party or what policy tribe are you in at a particular time. In my mind, you should be focusing, and I feel I have tried in my policy career, to focus for these values of economic dignity for everyone. Now, you're gonna deal with different obstacles like that Bill Clinton had uh, six years of all Republican governance. And I think you're also going to find that even if you had policies that seemed like they were well thought out at the time, events later added knowledge that gives you clarity on where you should go forward. In the end of the 90s, the statistics were incredibly strong in terms of low unemployment rate, poverty falling, But I think when you look at how the last 20 years have gone, one has to recognize that structural economic issues from increased economic concentration in the tech field to lack of unionization, decline of minimum wage, you know, these things are having a dramatic impact and they deserve more attention. So I think some of this Might be a shift for some people in policy, but a lot for me is just seeing the world as it is and being willing to adjust your policies to the challenges that prevent all people from feeling that they can work, raise their family and retire with dignity. You
6: mentioned uh, partisanship there and the the, the difficulties of of making progress, passing laws with different parties controlling different parts of government. To what extent is economic dignity a partisan issue? Is it possible to have a right-wing free market political philosophy that pays due respect to economic dignity as a value?
2: I do believe that when one goes to a more value-based approach, you do have greater chances of breaking through certain partisan divides. Uh, What I do criticize is what I call the emptiness of the new conservatives who focus on dignity. They don't listen to the part of Martin Luther King's speech where he says, what good is it to win the right to sit at an integrated lunch counter if you don't have the resources to buy your family a meal? And I contrast many of the conservatives today with Teddy Roosevelt, who grew up as a free market, pro-business conservative, but through his actual visits to places making cigars and tenements and filth and working 18 hours a day with their children, he adjusted his philosophy to the actual realities people face. You've got to be able to look beyond an iron box of smaller government market idealism and ask, what do people need to actually live with economic dignity do you think
6: there are examples of specific policies today that would boost economic dignity that would be feasible on a bipartisan basis that would be acceptable to republicans i
2: think the challenge is often is whether you can get by the the easy divide to what the kind of end value is so when people were talking about protecting people with pre-existing conditions. When it was called part of Obamacare, there was a huge partisan divide. When people started just asking, if you're a working parent and your child has a disability or your spouse has a heart condition, is it fair that an insurance company could deny you health care or spike up your costs? When it was put in those terms, then people supported that. Two other things that have happened during the crisis. One, we have started to give unemployment insurance to people who don't have traditional employment relations, gig economy workers, domestic workers. They've been left out for decades. That's a step forward, partly because people got out of their partisan divide and looked at these people who were risking their lives and said, well, of course, if they lose their job, they should have health care. We have seen an expansion in paid sick leave in our country, again, because people got out of whether it was Republican and conservative issue and started saying, is it safe for all of us that some people go to work when they're sick? because they couldn't take a paid day off. So those things have actually been expanded in the current recovery packages. So, you know, one can be dark, but those are signs of progress. And I think that would be the challenge of the next progressive president, is to root these things in basic human experiences and try to get past whether this reflects a shift of a particular party in a particular direction.
0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: And finally, it's been a tough few months for many businesses. And one that has been hurting more than most is Coty, an American cosmetics giant, which has seen its share price fall by 60%. It's just got its fourth chief executive in five years. He's Peter Half, chairman of J.B. Holdings, which is Coty's majority owner, but a firm not often in the public spotlight. Vendeline Fombrero, the economist European business and finance correspondent, has been looking into the company
3: so jb holding and jb consumer fund have more than 100 billion euros under management so that's obviously a big chunk they are or controlled by the Reimann family, a very private German business clan or, or business billionaires, basically. And although they own some of the best-known brands in the world, including Dr. Pepper and Prada and Coric Coffee, the holding itself is virtually unknown. And they're a private company? They are a private company. They're a private investment group. They are a little bit similar to Sweden's Investor AB, or indeed Italy 's ExO, who I should mention are um, the biggest shareholders of The Economist Group, so it is family wealth that 's being invested. They are however unusual because different from investor AB and EXO, they also run JAB Consumer Fund that is a consortium of other wealthy families and what 's their business
1: model? I mean do they run these firms or these brands with a very tight grip or do they give them a lot of autonomy?
3: So the business model is a little bit unusual in the sense that J.B. Holding is mainly invested in three big assets. So it's not very diversified. It's far less diversified than, say, Investor. They are really focused on uh, coffee and cosmetics. Their coffee business was recently listed in an IPO. And cosmetics is basically the Coty Group, and that's the troubled part of their business. In terms of their strategy, do they run it tightly? Yes, they do. So another unique feature of the holding is that all the CEOs, and not only the CEOs, all the executive suite of their portfolio companies, has to invest a chunky bit of their personal wealth into the company. And of course, their reasoning is that if they invest their own money into the company, they'll do their very, very best to run it well. And if they want to take risks, they do it because they think it's the best for the company.
1: You mentioned that Coty, the cosmetics business, has not been doing so well. What are the problems there and and how is the group as a whole doing?
3: Coty has not done well for a while now. I think they took it over in 2015 They have not been able to to turn it around. The other thing they did recently is they formed a partnership with KKR, with a private equity fund. And KKR injected, I think, 750 million euros into the business and has also now become a a shareholder.
1: And you mentioned what a tightly focused group it is but are they diversifying i mean i saw suggestions they're moving into pet care for example
3: they are so they're not a very diversified group as we said before but they are now building up their pet care business and it's <laughs> it sounds unusual but it's actually a growing uh, and, and rapidly growing business in particular in america but also in europe and so they've been buying pet clinics basically and because the ownership of pets really increased in the last 20 years. So it's a very lucrative business. And I think they want to grow it in the next few years.
1: Then what you've been describing is, by any sense, a, a huge business, which raises the question of where I started, really. I mean, Why are they so little known? Are they deliberately secretive?
3: The fact that they are so private is to some extent deliberate. Um, For instance, there's no photograph of any member of the Ryman family available. I mean, I I looked everywhere and on their website, of course, there's nothing but even no paparazzi. And they say that at the age of um, 18, family members have to sign a document that basically states their obligation to remain private, not to show themselves in public. It's related, I suppose, to the family's past, which has been uh, recently uncovered by a historian who they had hired. So they are cooperating with the historian, but their ancestors had used forced labor and even slave. Labor under the Nazis for their companies. They started out, the JB Fortune started out as a chemical company. And so that chemical firm used slave labor during the Second World War. That's, of course, something they are coming to terms with. They made a big donation of 10 million euros for a charitable foundation. So they are sort of working through their painful past. But I suppose their privacy is related to the past.
1: Though, as you say, commissioning a historian themselves uh, does seem to show some signs of opening up, I suppose. Are we likely
3: to see more of it? Yes, I think so. I've been in touch with JAB and Peter Half is responding to our questions. Peter Half is sort of the, the boss. here, and Olivier Goudet there's two of them of the holding. And they seem to indicate that, yes, in the next few years, they intend to be more open and, and a little bit more accessible. And so they are sort of but very gently reversing that course.
1: ben from Bredo, thank you. A pleasure, Simon. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.